Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 35th episode of Reaching Extinction. Um, happy Orca Month. This week, uh, this episode is dedicated to Orca Month. Um, so I've chatted with Deborah Giles. We had her on episode four. She's an orca biologist um, and runs Orca Wild. Um, she's got the dog Eba, who goes out and studies killer whale poop. You can learn more about that in episode four. Um, but this week we talked about the three main threats that are impacting the whales and we focused a lot on prey because that's the biggest issue. So I'll just turn it to her so that she can tell you guys more about it and you guys hear it directly from an expert. Awesome. So I've got Deborah Giles again here with me today and we're going to talk about some super important whale stuff um, of all the important things that are affecting the southern residents right now. So awesome. I'll give it to you then. Okay. Well, this year definitely is shaping up to be another odd year. Uh, We didn't have any whale, no southern residents that were uh, visually seen in the month of May. And so far, what is it here? The 19th of June. And uh, we haven't had any visual observations of southern residents in the inland water yet this month. Um, Even the mammal-eating killer whales seem to be a bit more, uh, um, I think, rare this year than they have been in the last couple of Mays and Junes. Um, I'll have to to look into that, but just anecdotally, uh, I'm just not, we're not getting the reports like we were before. Now, part of that might have to do with the fact that there's a lot fewer eyes on the water or has been until this past week or so because of the quarantine. Sure. Um, there have been no, very few private boats, very few commercial whale watch boats, no commercial whale watch boats actually, um, prior to just uh, um, just the last couple of days, I feel like. And so that for sure would have limited the number of uh, observations of whales out there. But even that, even still, I feel that um, certainly the Southern residents, if we, if they had been in the inland waters, we would have heard them or see, somebody would have seen them. Right. Um, and then the big killer whales or mammal eating killer whales, uh, they may be out there, but, um, but I still, there's so many eyes on the water uh, throughout the Canadian Gulf Islands and the San Juan Islands in Vancouver Island um, that I feel like somebody would be seeing them at some point. So overall, I do feel like the, the abundance of, of killer whales occurring in the Salish Sea is down this year. And for sure for the southern resident killer whales. Absolutely. Um, and so we don't know where the southern residents have been, correct? That's right. Um, a number of weeks ago now, probably a little over two weeks ago, J-Pod was seen off of Tofino, the west side of Vancouver Island. Um, and then probably out towards Swiftshire Bank, they were documented. Um, and then a couple days before that, uh, K-Pod was seen in Eureka, California, uh, but other than that, there have been no uh, visual sightings of the whales in the last uh, quite quite some time, month and a half, two months. Absolutely. So a lot of people ask me, like, why are we not tagging the whales? Why can't we, like, you know, track them? Um, what What would you say to that? Did you say tagging? Tagging or tracking the whales. Um, so there was a tagging project that uh, NOAA mm-hmm. was engaged in for a number of years Unfortunately, one of the tags ended up becoming contaminated mm-hmm. and uh, infecting one of our southern resident killer whales, which resulted in his death. So that was uh, L95, mm-hmm. uh, also known as Nigel. 
And when that happened, it uh, triggered automatically a shutdown of that project. Um, it's just the way that it, it happens. Sure. If, uh, if a tag kills an animal, the project gets um, stopped. In order for the federal government to be able, or, or if it's a non or a different organization doing the tagging, um, a period of time has to uh, go by where um, the situation is assessed. Why did that happen? And ways to mitigate it. And um, the fact of the matter is, is that with this incredibly small population of individuals, you know, with just 72 Southern residents, um, right now, um, since that, since L95 was accidentally killed, uh, it's just on hold because we don't have enough whales to, to, to tag. Absolutely. You know, the potential of losing another one is too high. Absolutely, that makes sense for sure, um, you know, which is, I guess, why it's really important that we have photo ID. That's like a really awesome technique that we have. Um, mm -hmm. Cool. So do you want to tell us a little bit about the three main issues that are impacting the Southern residents? And then I know a lot of our conversation is going to focus on prey because it's Orca Awareness mm -hmm. Month. And this week, that's what it's all about. So, yeah, the three main identified threats uh, when the whales were listed in 2005 uh, were um, vessel presence and associated noise. The three main identified threats to this population uh, when the whales were listed in 2005 were lack of quality and quantity prey, specifically Chinook salmon. Okay. And uh, contaminants in the water of all kinds, um, that would have been uh, things like uh, potential for oil spill was identified, but more specifically, things like PCBs, okay. which were an industrial lubricant, which were actually banned in the early 70s. Wow. DDP, uh, which was a, um, it's still used in parts of the world. Uh, DDT was an agricultural chemical, also banned in the early 70s. And sure. then uh, more recently, a whole class of, um, a whole family of, of toxic, of toxic chemicals uh, called PBDEs or flame retardants. Okay. And all of those are uh, bioaccumulated uh, up the food chain. So they enter the water system and are uptaken by um, the smallest of uh, plankton, zooplankton, and maybe even phytoplankton, we think now. Um, but regardless, the, the, um, the zooplankton is eaten by fish and the fish are eaten by the whales. And ultimately, the farther up the food chain, uh, that, that those toxicants are biomagnified. And once it gets into the whale's blubber, as long as the whales are getting enough to eat, um, the, um, the issue with uh, having toxic food sure. um, isn't so much of a problem if the whales are getting enough to eat. Um, I often say it's like the one reason to uh, get fat and stay fat. You know, you want a whale to get fat and stay fat. Um, you never want to see a skinny whale because mm -hmm. if you see a skinny whale, it means that they're metabolizing. At some point, they've metabolized their blubber. And when that happens, all of those toxicants that have been locked up in the fat start circulating through the whale's system. And that's what makes the whales uh, immune compromised. It makes them more susceptible to disease. It's certainly, we know from human studies, when people are going through detox diets, um, it makes people feel lethargic, can't think straight. Um, and so we're talking about a situation where we have a starving animal, a hungry animal that's bioaccumulating 
um, releasing those toxins as they're metabolizing their blubber, and yet they can't forage as efficiently as they need to be mm-hmm. um, in order to, to catch that prey. And then, you know, kind of coupled on top of that is the fact that there's so much less prey and um, the prey that is out there is less quality than it used to be. Mm-hmm. You know, these fish are smaller, less lipid rich. And so the whales are having to work that much harder, not feeling well, work harder Mm -hmm. to find fewer fish that are less quality. So it's kind of just like bad news all the way around. Absolutely. And then lastly, um, the third identified threat is um, uh, the vessels. So Mm -hmm. vessels are increasing in abundance throughout the Salish Sea and throughout the world, really, um, throughout the West Coast, throughout the Southern Residence Range. Mm -hmm. Um, that, uh, and that's everything from, uh, large ships that are taking, uh, raw, usually raw material from North America mm-hmm. and then, uh, bringing back from Asia, Asian, uh, markets, uh, the finished goods. And so these are, uh, constant near constant large, uh, shipping, um, vessels that are, that are carrying product of some sort. So those are increasing in abundance. And then. You've got everything from small commercial and recreational uh, um, whale watch boats, uh, just people out there fishing, commercial fishing, recreational Mm -hmm. fishing, um, even kayaks are increasing in the region. And so um, there's a lot, the the physical presence of vessels as well as the associated noise with those vessels. That's the problem for these whales. And one of our studies that came out from the fecal project, um, uh, Dr. Sam Wasser is the lead on that project. And his first grad student that was uh, analyzing the scat samples uh, found that the whale's stress hormones, basically in a, in a nutshell, the whales are um, living in these waters that are both toxic as you know, full of chemicals and noise from the vessels. But those things don't seem to impact the whales in the same way when they're getting enough to eat. So as long as the whales are getting enough to eat, the the, um, other two threats are less of a threat. Um, We know that uh, from a biological perspective, but also uh, kind of anecdotally or as a proxy by looking at the mammal eating killer whales, they're in the same water, uh, you know, being um, exposed to the same uh, toxic soup. In fact, they're actually more toxic because they're eating higher up on the food chain. Mm-hmm. So their food is toxic more than a fish would be toxic. So these mammal eating killer whales are actually more overall, they're more toxic individuals um, that they're getting enough to eat. And so those lipophilic toxins that they're getting through their food, um, lipophilic means that it's fat loving. So those mm-hmm. toxins get locked up in the fat. And as long as they're eating enough and not metabolizing that blubber, those toxicants don't get released. And so we're seeing mammal eating killer whale females giving birth like every three years, three to five years. That's a normal birth rate Mm -hmm. for a large mammal, a long lived large mammal like a killer whale. Um, And we're just not seeing the same thing with the Southern residents. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a lot of threats for sure. Um, so as far as like with the prey, that clearly is probably, I mean, all the issues are important and we should definitely fight all of them, but the prey sounds like it's the most pressing right now. Um, what is getting in the way of them not having prey? What can we do um, as individuals to make sure that, you know, they are getting the prey that they need? 
Yeah, so the prey issue is is a long uh, has a long history with a lot of different factors uh, playing into into the decline of, of salmon. Mm-hmm. So while the whales do eat a couple of other uh, fish species, um, generally the diet isn't probably more than five five percent or so of their diet is non salmonid species. So I'll concentrate on salmon, and even within that, I'll, I'll concentrate mostly on Chinook salmon. Um, the the fact is is that we uh you know over the the last you know 200 years but certainly in the last 100 years uh we have significantly changed the abundance of salmon available to the whales and really the the salmon available to the ecosystems in which they evolved um salmon are uh, in a lot of ways can be thought of as ecosystem engineers themselves um in that they help shape the ecosystems that they evolved in. I always like bringing up uh, a, a fun fact that, you know, you can core into trees that were abundant in salmon territory, in salmon uh, lands, and uh, find salmon DNA in the trees. Wow. Yeah. Um, and that's, uh, you know, being taken up by the roots with salmon being, you know, brought from the river, mm-hmm. taken over to a tree, and scavenged and foraged upon by uh, whatever it is that's caught it and or even things like uh, eagles or mm-hmm. other fish bringing the salmon up to the tree itself up into the, the limbs of the tree and, and foraging up there. So when I when you think about that, you know, you, 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 you've seen probably this graphic where it's like land and then water and salmon and then out of the salmon comes this tree. Mm-hmm. You know, salmon are thought to be um, important to over 130 species. Wow. And so, yeah, so in directly or indirectly reliant on salmon. And so, um, that's, that's an important, really important thing to remember about this region. The Pacific Northwest is salmon nation. And, um, but yet we've done things like damming rivers, massively damming rivers, um, you know, putting in culverts in rivers that don't maybe have dams, they have culverts, which essentially act as dams. We've denuded the riparian corridor um, so that land um, just adjacent to the to both sides of a river is called the riparian corridor. And we've denuded it right up to the riverbanks, um, which completely changes everything about that, that those rivers as being good habitat for salmon. Um, you know, and then you add in the human impacts uh, in the terrestrial realm, everything from industrialized um, farming of all kinds, animal and plant farming, which have a lot of inputs. Those industries have a lot of inputs into them in the form of um, pesticides, herbicides, fertilizers, antibiotics, things like that. All of that ends up in the marine realm, mm-hmm. going into the river and then ultimately into the ocean. Um, and then the impacts of fishing. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that with our uh, industrialized way of fishing, we have the capacity to pretty much fish out everything that's in our path. Mm-hmm. And there are so many different nations fishing on salmon um, in different regions that the salmon occupy. Um, and there's uh, a bit of coordination amongst uh, different fishing groups, but um, perhaps not enough. Mm-hmm. And so we need to be taking into consideration the fact that these these salmon are a wide-ranging species. They've got a very, very dynamic and varied life history um, in which they are born, you know, they're laid as eggs. 
fertilized and then hatched out as small salmon that make their way down rivers and into the ocean realm. I'm talking about Chinook salmon and mm. the other anadromous fish, which means that they have part life in freshwater and part of their life in, uh, in saltwater. So they, they have just this crazy, amazing um, evolution of life. Mm -hmm. And at every single stage of the way, we've done things to um, impair their, their natural life cycle. Mm -hmm. And so um, we need to really take a hard look at every single aspect of that and see how we can roll back some of, some of the damage that we've done. Absolutely. And so from what I'm hearing, it sounds like that we can kind of... Um go back and make those actions correct. Obviously it's going to take time, right? But we can, we can try to fix it. Correct. I do. I do really do believe that. And, um, you know, I had a really, um, uh, a bit of a shock this morning waking up and, uh, I really should not get right on, uh, uh, you know, news and social media channels, but I found out today that, um, that the, founder of the discipline of conservation biology died michael soule and it just really oh. has hit me hard because i absolutely in my heart of hearts thought that i was going to be able to get him up here and meet him and talk to him and talk to him about the whales um but what he said you know he was somebody that taught us that species have intrinsic value and that it's our responsibility to do everything that we can to help recover them and he also said that humans have the capacity to change things we we i just want to read this little quote that was in one of his obituaries today i'm really sorry I didn't no start. that's okay um he said this obituary says sule referred to his perspective on the fate of biodiversity as neither optimism nor pessimism but rather possibleism he believed that deep rooted deeply within the human within humans is the ability to alter our future and connect back to the past and to connect back to nature and that's those his philosophies are have driven my career my life history mm -hmm. i think i even talked to you about michael soule when you were here mm -hmm. before um his his tenants the basic tenants of conservation biology is what we really need to start embracing again recognizing that humans are part of nature humans are part of the uh, of the overall global ecosystem and that and that we um it's incumbent upon us it's our responsibility as humans uh sharing this planet with other species to recognize the intrinsic value of other species and we need to, to, to go back and fix some of the things that we've changed, fix some of the damage that we've done. I truly believe that it's not too late. I think that these animals and ecosystems are incredibly resilient. They've been here through the millennia, long before we were here, long before we were having such dramatic impacts on, the, on these ecosystems mm -hmm. and on these species. 
And um, it, it over evolutionary time, it's a fairly short amount of time that we've done a lot of damage. Yeah. Um, and so I believe in the re- resiliency of nature. I believe that nature has the capacity to, to recover if we just give a little bit of space, if we just undo some of the damage that we've done. And, um, and we have to do that. We have to do that for the salmon and we have to do that for the whales that rely on them. Because ultimately, it's going to benefit we humans as well. Everything that we do that helps recover the the whales means that we're helping to recover ourselves in a, you know, in a physical way, as well as our kind of mental health and our and our connection to to the natural world. The more tied in and the more tapped in we are to nature and this amazing planet that, that we're living on, I think the healthier we are. Yeah, absolutely. I, I 100% agree with you. And I think that's kind of been the theme throughout this is, you know, the issue isn't really the dams or or the salmon or anything like that. Like the, those are symptoms. The issue is, is the way that we value the environment. And it's, you know, it's very sad to see that people that we've become disconnected in a sense. And I talked with Gay Bradshaw and she said that we're not disconnected. We're just kind of confused at this point. And like, how do we get back to that? You know, yeah. I, I totally agree with you. I think that it's, you know, as far as obviously physical health, like we need to be in tune to the earth, but mental health too. Like, you know, we have this strong bond with the planet just as, as other animals do. And so we're missing out by not doing that. So the question is then how do we, how do we change the way that we culturally value the environment? Because it's seen yeah. as a commodity now. Yeah, yeah. And it's so much more than a commodity. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that we're, we devalue the, the, the reality by commodifying nature. Um, and the fact is, is that uh, very few people actually benefit financially from the massive destruction that we, that we bring upon the, the, the planet in, in so many different ways. Um, you know, humanity as a whole does not benefit from that. Um, it's a very few number of people or corporations that benefit from the massive, massive destruction that's occurring in every single realm. And that, that um, separation of, of humanity from nature um, is, will continue to just plague us. It will continue to, to you know... I, I don't want to be fatalistic or something, but the farther away from nature we get, the more we devalue what nature brings us and what we can bring to nature, the less I think human we are in a lot of ways. We, we lose some, some part of who we are as humans and, and as a species that evolved on this planet and with the, with the species that we see around us. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And I've, you know, over the last year really thought about what it means to be human. And there's so many things that, you know, culturally that I was taught of like what it is to be human or talking in college about like the difference between human and animals or non-human animals. And, you know, there's always the theme of a disconnect between us and nature that we're separate and we're not. And I totally agree with you. Like we, we were a part of this ecosystem once before too. Like we were, we're just as much like a part of it as other animals are. And we have to get back to that. Cause I mean, we still are that way. We just don't view it that way. Right. So I agree with you. We need to, you know, figure out a way to, to 
reintegrate ourselves. Um, but it's really hard to change culture, culture, but it's, it's very much worth it, you know? Um, so what can we do if we want to help the orca and we want to help the salmon? Because, you know, the salmon are really important also, and they're really remarkable animals that more people should learn about because I find that anybody that goes and learns about salmon that, you know, they, they become inspired and, you know, there's, there's so many cool things about salmon. So what can we do to help these guys? Right. I totally agree. I I've often said, if I could go back and do my undergrad again, I would study salmon mm -hmm. um, because uh, they are just, and they are the most unlikely uh, animal, what their bodies go through. Um, there's just really nothing else like it. And everything that they do for the ecosystems that they evolved in are, you know, it's unparalleled. There is no other single animal that impacts its own ecosystem in the way that it does in a positive way, if, if allowed, mm -hmm. um, by bringing nutrients, ocean nutrients from Alaska up to the headwaters of this, you know, Snake River a thousand miles inland from the Pacific Ocean is just, you know, phenomenally crazy to think about. Um, so what can we do? I mean, I think that we need to get, uh, we need to get our hands dirty. We need to get our feet wet. We need to plug in in ways to help, um, help restore the ecosystem and small things matter. Um, going out and planting trees, it might seem like a crazy, you know, far-fetched thing like, plant trees for whales, but that's what they need. Those fish need that riparian corridor to be restored. They need cover. They need shade. They need um, undammed rivers whenever possible. Um, and so getting educated and passing on that education to other people is vitally important. Um, physically putting your, putting your body out there, putting your mind towards uh, helping to recover Habitat restoration efforts are are very valuable and they do make a difference. Um, and uh, right now, I think that the, the most important thing that I can say is voting. Um, we, we just cannot be having people voted into office that do not have an environmental ethic. Um, because the more we move away from uh, environmental protection laws, and laws that help to, uh, um, pardon me, actions that help to pr protect um, by way of say land purchases or something like that, where land can be set aside for, for non-development. Mm -hmm. Those are things that are so important because um, once it's gone, it's gone. Mm -hmm. um, it, or I should say once it's gone, whatever it is, it takes, it's so much harder to restore it than it is to protect it. Mm -hmm. So restoration, it, at my professor was, uh, my, my professor who actually taught me about Michael Soule, um, Dr. Elliot Fisk, Deborah Elliot Fisk, always said that habitat restoration is a, is a, a second option for habitat conservation. We have to conserve what's still as pristine as possible and then start with our restoration efforts. And then, um, you know, continuing to support that by the way that we spend our money, what we spend our money on and, and how we spend our time. Um, <clears throat> so that's what I would say. Be sure, you know, if you're going to eat meat, uh, um, salmon, uh, ideally it would be good to know where that salmon came from. Um, it's not good enough just to, to read on the label that it's Alaskan caught wild salmon. You need to know what river it comes from. 
because only 3% of salmon caught in Alaska is native to Alaskan river. Mm -hmm. And those are the fish that are terminally caught. They're caught in or near the river mouth of origin. And so um, fishermen and biologists can keep a, a closer handle on, um, on what those particular runs are looking like health-wise. Um, when we do this mixed stock fishing, open mixed stock fishing, we don't know what it is until it's already in the net and possibly too late. And so um, really getting involved with fisheries management issues for people, I think is very, very important. Um, on our Wild Orca website, you can look up our Fair Fisheries campaign to learn how to get involved, um, who to contact, who to write letters to, um, you know, respectfully written, handwritten letters sent in to the people uh, that have a, 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 an ability to uh, impact uh, situations regarding fisheries management. Um, those letters are vitally important. Um, and so you can go to Wild Orca's website to, to learn who to write to and what to say and just basically get in, uh, um, educated about that issue. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the things that people can do and, and teach other people what you learn. Pass on what you, what you, the, the knowledge. Get other people excited about salmon or killer whales or ecosystem restoration. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, people underestimate their power and the power of one person, but it takes one person to start something. And, you know, I, you, we're very lucky to be in a community, I mean, like the Orca community where people care so much and there's so many individuals doing things. But if we continue to grow that, you know, we can get so much more done. But you're right, people need to plant a tree, you need to plant a seed. And with the theme of like planting a tree, it's gonna take, it's gonna take a long time. You know, this is not something I think we live in a culture where we want instant, but it's just important to keep in mind, like plant a seed, like, and keep pushing towards it. Cause we have to, we have to do something or else we're, there's going to be nothing left to protect, you know? Right. There's a saying that says, um, the best time to plant a tree was 20 or 50 years ago, but the next best time to plant a tree is today. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've definitely made mistakes or, you know, people that have come before us have made mistakes that we have to learn from them. You know, that's not, that doesn't make us a very good species. We're not going to survive if we're not adaptable. All these other species are adapting to so many things outside of their control. Um, so we kind of need to follow that suit as well. But yes, absolutely. We should look at your website, um, wildorca.org. Awesome. And I'll put the link in, um, in the episode details. And then another... Um, cool place to look if you're if you eat fish is um, the Monterey Bay Aquarium has the seafood watch guide and they have like an app and everything. Have you heard of that or do you ever use that one? I have um, and I do believe that recently they have made a change to that for the better where they're oh. not just wholesale uh, uh, pushing wild Alaskan salmon. Oh. Um, it used to be the case that they were saying eat wild, wild caught Alaskan salmon. But again, as we mentioned earlier, um, we need to know the river of origin. Okay. Uh, so I hope that the Monterey Bay Aquarium has made that, uh, change, uh, to not be so, it's too broad of a stamp of approval. Okay. Uh, by saying Alaskan caught, it doesn't tell you much. It doesn't tell you anything about the health of the, of the run that that fish comes from. Absolutely. So hopefully, hopefully Monterey Bay uh, has, has made that change um, because they certainly, Monterey Bay has been a leader. Uh, Monterey Bay Aquarium has been a leader in ocean 
um, health, ocean, um, science, mm -hmm. education, outreach for decades. And they are an amazing organization that people should support. And, um, and their seafood watch guide has been, has been a leader mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, that, but that's one of those things that needs to be kept up to date with for the sure. best available science. So that's, that's awesome. Yeah. I didn't, you know, honestly, I don't know as much about fisheries as I do some of the other things, like still fairly new to this field as opposed to people that have been here for decades. But, um, that's, yeah, that's definitely a good thing to keep in mind. So we'll check out your website and that's where we can find that information. Um, and is also, there, yes, the, sorry, I just wanted to put in a plug for the center for conservation biology. That's actually who I work for. Okay. And, um, Center for Conservation Biology. Um, I'm so proud to be a part of the Center for Conservation Biology because it lives by the tenants of Michael Soleil. And um, that's the organization that it's a department um, it, within the uh, biology department at the University of Washington in Seattle. Mm -hmm. And it's through that uh, department mm -hmm. that we do the conservation canines uh, whale scout project. And mm -hmm. so, so much of what we know now about the health of these whales, um, has come out of the analysis of fecal matter. Mm -hmm. And that has been collected through, um, the ongoing research that we're doing. The center for conservation biology is doing collecting, not just Southern resident killer whale feces now, but also, um, mammal eating bigs, killer whale, uh, fecal samples, as well as baleen whales. So we got a couple of great humpback whale scat samples last year that are being analyzed for some of the same, well, really all of the same things that we look at for, from our Southern resident scat samples. And so looking at the um, Conservation Canines website, will mm -hmm. uh, teach you more about that research. And then our con uh, current Conservation Canine is Eva, E-V-A. Mm -hmm. And she has the website called Eva the Whale Dog. And uh, you can go there to learn specifically about the whale project as well as the Conservation Canines uh, project uh, website mm -hmm. has information about the Whale Scout project. Um, but uh, yes, just some more some more things for people to look up. Yeah, awesome. We're always like looking to give people more resources and the the best resources too. I don't want to just you know tell people oh go here it has information you know you're a, a scientist in the field doing it you're gonna know the most like current stuff so we appreciate you sharing all that with us and making it so accessible because um, I know you know it's it's hard to do that on top of doing all the science too so we appreciate you making that available to all of us. Um, yeah, the other last thing I would just say is that there are tremendous organizations involved with Orca Month. And so going to the Orca Month website and Facebook page, you can learn about so many more organizations that are doing phenom phenomenal work from, um, you know, Sound Action doing work on, in the uh, marine realm with regard to dock building and mm -hmm. uh, water quality issues, uh, Orca Network, um, Whale Scout doing tree planting in uh, mostly in and around the Seattle uh, Seattle and suburbs of Seattle. So there's just a tremendous, and that's just a couple that I named, but there are um, probably 20 amazing or, uh, nonprofit organizations involved with Orca Month, including the Seattle Aquarium doing great things um, up in this region, like Monterey Bay is doing down in your region. Awesome. Yeah. And, you know, I recently put together a document. I'm trying to find, like, all the organizations so I can post it on this website, too. But there's so many things out there so people can find something close to them. And if you're from the East Coast or you're in a square state or something like that, you can – doing something to help the ocean is still – it's still going to help. So if you can't 
directly help the southern residents or our Chinook salmon. There's you, there's other fish in the, you know, we are one big planet, so it will make a difference. Absolutely. Awesome. Um, is there anything else that you want people to know or that you think we should be doing right now? Um, no, I think we did a pretty good job covering it. Yeah, I think so too. I usually end the episodes asking what we can learn from the whales, but you've already been on here and I've already asked you that. So what do you think we can learn from the salmon? Uh, be resilient. Never give up. Keep pushing uh, for your next life goal. The next stage in life. Keep pushing towards that next stage in life and, and continuing to evolve. Awesome. Yeah, I really like that. Well, thanks so much for being on here and, you know, for sure. And happy Orca Month to everybody. So. Really? Oh, thanks so much for joining us. Do you have something to say, Peaches? Really? Well, what? You're upset? Oh, my goodness. All right, well, Peach and I wish you a happy Orga Month. Peach would like you to go look at all of the organizations that we just talked about and um, go check us. Really? You keep crying. You're so dramatic. Peaches does not want the Southern residents to die. She says, please go help. Um, so check out the websites that we just talked about, Wild Orca, Orca Month. Um, I'll be posting a spreadsheet on my new website um, that's I'm going to plan to launch in July. Um, and you guys can find more organizations there. But if you need some help too, you can always shoot me a message on social media or um, through our website or something. But have a great Orca Month. Have a great Pride Month. Bye.